Shay Agassi, thank you very much for your time today. Um, well, now, when you were planning uh, Project Better Place and sketching it all out, and you started to realise the scale of the project and the kind of the international and political support you'd need to get this off the ground, what went through your mind? I think at, in the beginning, um, don't forget it was sort of a, um, a puzzle more so than the project. So, I, you know, I had a different job. I was in a different career. And this was a, uh, a World Economic Forum um, side question that, uh, that I dealt with. And, uh, and, you know, a lot of people said, you must be out of your mind. You, know, you can't do these things. And I said, that's just, it's, it's easier to think about it when it's not your main, your main task in life. Um, and then I, I realized I need to, I, you know, sort of, I need to speak to the politicians. I need to speak to the corporations. And the, what I did is I basically circulated a white paper, and just you know handed it off to people, and used a lot of opportunities to talk to people. Um, really, sort of challenge myself on whether I'd be able to explain it to them, and um, and you know in most cases it intrigued them enough that um, that they were able to give me guiding questions, and uh, and I think. Uh, until uh, about a year ago, a year and a half ago, you know, it was it was a bit more of a fantasy than uh, than reality. And then a year ago, it sort of started becoming more real. And, and how did you take it from there? What were the first steps you took? Well, you know, it's uh, it, there were a number of, of of meetings that I had with uh, with lead politicians in in a number of countries around the world. Um, Sharing the idea with them and see if, if it's possible to get support. The original idea was to get a a country to uh, to fund this as sort of a national project and not a f not a for profit. And uh, and it was very hard because the, the 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 audacity of the goal is sometimes confused with the impossibility of the goal. And uh, and so I I've you know until when I got to Shimon Peres. Of Israel, current president, um, he sort of started taking me by the hand, saying, "Let's talk to the industrialists. Forget about governments. Governments have budgets; they have no money." And uh, and he sort of, you know, brought me over to talk to the industrialists, uh, the, you know, the big um, families and businesses in Israel, and and, um, and I saw that they get excited. I mean, it's, it was interesting because they didn't think it's impossible. They thought it was, it, even if you, if you partially succeed, it's, it's still a fantastic business. And I realized you, one of the things you need to do is to really get some, you know, get some people excited over the idea that they can make money that way. How are your nerves when you meet heads of countries? It's just people. It's, it's uh, um, you realize fairly quickly that they're, they're just people like you. Now, with uh, the project as it, as it is, um, y you're suggesting that um, in various different countries, five different countries, that you're trying to build virtual oil fields. Mm -hmm. And um, the plan, as, as, as I understand it, is that well, obviously Israel is taking this up first, building the infrastructure. Um, what, what, in a nutshell, is a virtual oil field? Mm -hmm. If you think of, uh, of the way an oil field works, in a sense, it's a it's a time delay um, concentrated solar power. It's a very long sentence, but 
the way we get oil is, is you get a lot of plants to soak a lot of sun, dye, and convert the chemical bonds that were in the trees into you know, an oily, um, concentrated matter. Um, the problem with it is we don't have time to wait for it, the process to happen. So it takes about 100 million years to, to go through it. And so the idea is if you could take this, the sun power and direct it right into a car without going through um, the molecular structure that is octane, which is very, very complicated. Um, and you can do it in, in a you know, sort of a balanced process. So in other words, you generate exactly the same amount of electrons as the number that you use ultimately. Um, then you, have, uh, you effectively have the power to drive cars without the need to um, emit on the one hand and wait the time on the other hand. Have you had any resistance from the oil companies at all? In that, you know, obviously this completely takes them out of the equation. No, it doesn't. So, here's what really takes oil companies out of the equation: if they run out of oil, <laughs> um, or if they think of themselves as oil companies. Mm -hmm. So, they're not really oil companies. What they do is they supply the energy required in order for you to drive cars. And we're all addicted to cars. Maybe not everybody in London, but I hear there's a big debate over uh, biking, yes or no. But um, at, at the end of the day, it's us who want oil. If, if the oil companies came up today and said, you know what, we think oil is really, really bad, so we're going to stop selling you oil, we'd, we'd all come up in arms and, and think this is a big scheme and the oil companies are evil. And they're supplying our needs. Now, if we gave oil companies a better source of energy, a cleaner source of energy, that will drive cars, that people will demand, that will satisfy their needs, they'll be in that business. You just need to show the oil companies that there's a better source. Um, this, well, publicly you said you've got $200 million behind the project, right. um, but to actually look at changing or so building some of the infrastructures that you need, I mean, say for example in London, you know, the infrastructure changes for the Olympics are going to cost somewhere like 13 billion pounds, 26 billion dollars. And that's just reports. Um, yeah, that's just reports. So uh, how do you intend to, to do all this with such a small budget, I suppose? So, so a couple of things that happen when, in this world of, uh, of financing. Um, when you do projects that are long-term that generate revenues for a long period of time, you, uh, you, you don't need to put all the money up for yourself. So you get banks who want to do what's called project financing. When, when you do, uh, you know, when you build a new grid, you build a new electric power plant. You don't. You're not expected to generate all the money on day one, and so people know that they can sort of create a table of how long you'd be able to sort of monetize this this infrastructure. And if the if the money makes sense over a period of time, they actually give you uh, they give you loans. Mm. They create debt facilities that actually add up to the you know, the two hundred million dollars grows uh, significantly at that uh, with, with that. The second thing that happens is uh, you need to um, find ways to create annuities so that you create um, effectively debt facilities. Um, and batteries are sort of mini oil fields. And so if, if you can show that that mini oil field will generate more money during its life than the times to take to, or the money it takes to create it, um, then you, you can create some, again, some tools that allow you to, to, to attract people who want to be in, uh, in that business of financing. Um, it's, it's an interesting point you, you make, and when you compare 
the battery to an oil field. Um, you've also compared this model to the mobile phone mm -hmm. subscription model. How will that work? Well, you know, when, when you uh, get your phone for free, somebody paid for it. Right? So, down the chain, somebody bought the chips and built the set, and you just didn't pay for it. And the reason you didn't pay for it is you, you didn't buy it directly. You didn't go to Nokia. You know, other than Apple, um, and even when you buy an, an iPhone, you don't pay the entire cost of the iPhone. Um, you, you usually don't, um, you don't pay the entire cost of the phone because you buy it from a service provider. Service provider provides a, a comprehensive service. Effectively, what it, it's, a, it's a mobile talking service. So when you think about it, th that service provider puts a lot of cost in the ground, in towers, in bandwidth, in the air. Uh, they buy it in, in sort of bulk, and then they sell you retail minutes. Um, and we're effectively in a similar model. What we're saying is you, you, we buy the batteries. It's the infrastructure we buy. It's sort of like bandwidth. Mm -hmm. But what we sell is kilometers. Which is what you really want. To, you don't want to buy batteries. I mean, it's, none of us like, likes to collect batteries, but um, you, you do like to pay for a kilometer, um, especially if you can use it uh, without creating any emissions. There's there's a, a value to it, and so people come in and say, "I'd like, we'd like to buy." It. Now, in the mobile industry, the longer you commit to buying minutes from the same provider, the more credit you get up front. The way you get that credit is in the phone. Um, and sometimes it's, it's funny today, you can actually see in some uh, mobile providers, they, they say, if you sign up with us, we'll give you a free phone and a high-definition television. So the credit is so much bigger than the phone today that they have to give you something else. Um, in, in our model, you're effectively um, getting, you know, the longer you sign up, the more credit you get. In some cases, you're going to just get enough credit to get a free car. Where is the project at at the moment in Israel since the announcement last month? So we have we have our first prototype car. We'll have you know, a few tens this year in Israel, and hopefully in other countries as well. Um, we're in the process of uh, of building uh, the first end-to-end um, -end, uh, infrastructure demonstration system. So it's the, the complete system, in effect. Uh, before it's it's going to go through a number of cycles and iterations to reduce the cost of the system. So what we do is we on a Every couple of months, we build the entire system again in, in, a, in a complete room. And uh, we test everything, and, and, and we sort of evaluate the cost structure, and we run through it again and again and again until we get to an acceptable uh, cost structure, and then you, you replicate in mass. So what sort of date are you looking for to roll this out properly and actually have you know, people use it? So what we're saying is that this, um, this year we will have a few tens of cars. We will roll it out in the sense of, of consumer education. Um, we're gonna. You know, our goal is to get about 50,000 people uh, to drive an electric vehicle and to get educated on the value of uh, of why it's good. Um, there's there's a fascinating process that happens uh, with when we see people sit in front of a, or in front of a wheel. Is a so we call it the three minute process. And the first minute you. Uh, you go through this uh, excitement, it's like it's a, it's a ride in a park. It's like, wow, it goes fast, and it's quiet, and it's this, and it's that. And the second minute, you sort of, you know, it's like, when, when do I get one? <laughs> it's, the, it's the, you start thinking, and all the questions turn into buying questions. And, you know, how much would it cost me, and you know, can I get it in a different model, a different color? And then the third minute, you sort of, it's just a car. So you've been driving for three minutes in, in sort of on a, in the circle, and uh, and after three minutes you sort of go, okay, I had enough, <laughs> and you just want to go because it's a car, 
And we want to we want to get a lot of people through that process. We want to get people to not think of it as an exotic, esoteric thing. At the end of the day, it's just a car. With the infrastructure that you're looking at, um, I was talking to Vantage Point and to BrightSource uh, about their solar farm, their solar facility they have there. Are, are they people you're working with on this project to actually get the electricity in the first place? So we'll work, we'll work with a variety of different um, green electricity providers um, because there's a different profile for different locations. It, you know, you won't set a solar farm in the middle of London. Unfortunately, for lenders. maybe climate change will affect it. But it's a shame. That's not going to happen very soon. Yeah. Um, but you have, you know, you have fantastic opportunities in in uh, in the UK for uh, wave power, for tidal power. Um, you know, depending on location, France, for example, you have nuclear power. And the, the the fact of the matter is that a nuclear power drives three to three and a half million cars. It's zero carbon, zero pollution emission um, footprint. Now, in some locations. You come in and you say, you know, you can put a nuclear power um, and drive all your cars in the country, and they'll tell you you're out of your mind. We're never going to put a nuclear power. Plant. So every location has its own power generation signature. You, you know, if you're in Israel, it's obvious that you're probably going to go to uh, some sort of solar thermal um, generation, and there'd be you know, one of many uh, solutions that can provide that kind of power. How's the political support been for this project so far? So Israel's been amazing in in the sense of. Uh, you know, that once, once you know, people got over the idea that it's crazy, um, and and the viability and the scale of it could could be sort of grasped and, and accepted. Um, there's been unbelievable support from the prime minister's office, from uh, finance ministry, you know, ministry of, of transport, uh, infrastructure, energy, every every branch, and obviously the president's office, um, which has been sort of the the vision leader. Uh, behind it, but you know, the, truly, you need to get. It's, it's almost like corporations. If you get the top guy in the corporation, in this case, it's the, the prime minister, to stand up and say, "Look, guys, we're going to do this. I want to know why we can't. I want to know how we make it happen." Um, then a lot of people line up and they say, "Okay, we, we'll we'll figure out what what can we do to to make it happen." And Israel is obviously a, a, a bigger question of national security and a variety of different geopolitical elements that that also come into play. How's Gordon Brown? Looking at this, you know, I haven't talked to Gordon Brown. So I've I have talked to um, to a few members of his uh, of his cabinet, um, and there's been good support. Um, there's been you know a higher level of skepticism, and it's 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 okay. It's it's acceptable. Mm. So uh, I, you know, I, but I got to tell you, there's there are uh, multiple forces in play, and um, and my guess is that. Once you're going to get one or two more countries in Europe to say we're going to do this, and I, I, I surely hope that you know, it will happen in the next few months. You mentioned the skepticism and the criticism. People have criticised this for being too ambitious. Mm -hmm. The mobile, the mobile model, should, you know, wouldn't really work in this in this uh, in this circumstance, and that there's not enough money, you know, available to actually build the infrastructures. Do you listen to criticisms? Like yeah, that? you have to. I think you have. You, look, if you don't listen to criticism, you don't learn. And you don't fix the model. Um, uh, here's a great lesson. I presented this the, the day before I presented uh, to Shimon Peres. I presented to uh, Bill Clinton, and uh, and President Clinton was you know he's amazing in the sense that he's attentive, can grasp a concept very very quickly, and uh, and I showed him the, the whole idea. The original idea was you know to sell electric vehicles and to reduce the cost of 
of the mile and you know sort of go and convince people at the dealership that if if you buy a clean car you'd be a good person and it will cost you less to operate it but you know it's a bit more expensive and and I go through this whole thing and I tell them about Israel and why Israel will be the perfect place for it and the policies are already in place for them and we go through this whole thing and at the end you know at the end of the presentation it says you're solving the right problem at the wrong time frame it was you know the first shot is you, you want to lock your brain and walk away and you know so you didn't get it and I, I said okay so tell me again why why it's not the right time frame he said look if you're going to try and and deal with um, with this thing in Israel and you're going to start convincing people and then within 10 years you're going to get to you know 70 80% of the new buyers will buy electric vehicle and it will take you another 15 years to sort of make that go through the full, full car park in the entire country 25 years from now you might get Israel then you're going to you know, sort of move to the next country, U.S., and you're going to start the same thing in the U.S. At that point, we ran out of oil, and we ran out of time. And so you solved the problem, but you solved it way too late. Because you have to figure out a way to get the guys who can't afford a new car at the end of their life cycle to go and get a new car and get an electric car. So figure out how you get a guy who cannot afford a car, who's driving a $2,000 beat-up car, to convert from his beat-up $2,000 car to a new electric vehicle. And then you got your right time frame. So I said, "How do you do that?" He said, "I don't know. You're the smart guy." And he walked away. <laughs> and it was it was brilliant because what he did is he gave me a level, of, you know, sort of, sort of good criticism, but um, but he didn't kill the aspirational goal. He said, "The aspirational goal is fantastic. Here's where you're wrong. Go fix it." And he didn't try to fix it. He just said, "You go fix it." And I, you know, sort of. Took, took it back and I said, okay, I've got to find a way to get a guy who cannot afford a new car to pay for a car. And that changed the model. That, that, that forced me to think of the mobile industry model and all, all these kinds of, of things. And, and now when you share it with people, they go, oh, yeah, it's obvious. It wasn't there in the original model a year ago. Mm -hmm. It came as a result of that criticism. I think that's, that's the beauty of listening to all the people and actually accepting that um, we don't know everything yet. You mentioned that you know this, there is a, a bit of a crossover between the tech market and the mobile market, I suppose, and, and where this is going. Mm -hmm. um, to what extent do you think the ecotech industry is mirroring uh, and copying the tech boom that we saw 10, 10 15 years ago or so? I think there's actually um, the tech boom of 10 years ago will, uh, will pale by two or three orders of magnitude when it will be compared to the clean energy boom. And, and there are multiple very interesting reasons why um, the, the energy business is the most um, most fundamental, most robust market in the, in the world. When you're disrupting or dislocating a market, you want to start with a market that is the biggest. Um, let's put it in perspective for a second. Google goes out and disrupts the ad business. Okay, that fundamentally changes the way long tail of advertising happens. Mm. Size of the market? A few billions of dollars? Ten billion dollars? Yeah. Just transportation energy in the world is 1.5 trillion dollars. If you want to go disrupt something, it's, it helps if it starts with a T instead of a B. <laughs> so the, there's there are fundamental market sizes that play towards you know, solving energy issues. The second thing is we're getting for the first time into a, uh, or first time in a very, very long time into constraint-based economics. If you look at what China is doing, the Chinese economy, and the effect 
um, is, is one of the first constraint-based economic models. The reason is you're driving a country with you know, 1.3 billion people with resources for about three, 400 million equivalency if you, if you looked at a sort of U.S. level of consumption. So it's obvious that you, when you run the map, you say, if we just let everybody consume what they want to consume, we can't, uh, we can't run the country. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out a model with which we can run the country with the constraints that we got. In effect, you're trading off natural resource constraints for freedoms. And we don't like that. We don't like the, you know, we don't like the model in which you have to trade off freedoms because we, we have, have become greedy and we have become used to a certain, used to certain, no, used, used to a certain set of freedoms. You would not accept somebody telling you you can't just drive as much as you want. You can't drive on Mondays. Okay? We, we, if, if you told Americans they can't drive on Sunday, there'll be a revolution. It's a freedom. It's, it's, you know, it's not even in the Constitution because they assume nobody would be stupid enough to tell them not to drive on a certain day. So that model is, is a model that is, is fundamentally against our way of living. Now, if we don't solve for the constraints, we're going to have to solve for the freedoms. And at the core of, of our being is, is that contract that we have, the social contract that we have. Do you think the politicians have recognized this yet, and that businesses as well? I think some have, and I think some are, um, some are still viewing the world in a very short-term, um, immediate, uh, interest-driven way. So, you know, if you, if you understand fundamentally that, uh, that we may end up in a, in, a, you know, in a world that will need governance at the same level, you know, sort of the, the Chinese model at, at, uh, at the expense, you know, sort of the, the expended model, the Chinese model for the entire world. Which, which, which might just happen. I mean, if, if, you, if you think of oil at 150, oil at 200, somebody's going to have to regulate who gets it. Mm-hmm. And, and so who's the one that will regulate? Is it the country that uh, the oil is just, just happens to be in its ground? Is it the consuming countries? And this is going to be a very big question mark when you get to, to questions like, you know, oil at 150 can stop the U.S. and the Chinese economy. Who gets it, the Chinese or the U.S.? And it's, it's unfair to say, you know, yes to either of them. What happens with the other 148 countries? So you, you, you get to fundamental questions like that, and the entire immediacy of the problem will become uh, pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. The U.S. imports $500 billion worth of oil every year. How many years do you think the U.S. economy can sustain on $500 billion going out from its money base to somebody else's money base? Mm-hmm. Can't be long. No. <laughs> three, years is, is the enti- three years is the entire Chinese reserve. Okay, That's $1.5 trillion. The U.S. will lose that just in oil, oil purchases in three years' time. So when, when you start understanding what it does, the dislocation of capital into um, sovereign funds, into national um, location, I mean, it's just the, the fundamental equation doesn't work for a long time. Mm. Who are you drawing inspiration from for this project? Who sort of, have you been looking up to the whole time? Well, I've, you know, Shimon Peres, President Peres of Israel, has always been um, a huge inspiration. Um, I go back to Kennedy. Um, and uh, you know the the uh, Apollo mission um, taking on a on, on something that you know for some people would be crazy, but you 
basically said, we're going to do this and figure it out, you know, go figure out a way. Um, so, that, I mean, those are the kind of, of um, scopes and size of, of problems that we're, we're dealing with here. Um, you know, and a lot of it is uh, you look at your kids and, and you wake up in the morning and say, you know, we're not going to give you a worse place than we've got. Shai, thank you very much for your time. I thank really you. appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you.